Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jack Boyle. Jackler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jackler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit, the Jackler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The Sydney Autumn Carnival is gathering momentum to March the 6th for the $1 million Group 1 Randwick Guineas over 1,600 metres. The race that should identify the three-year-olds most likely to go on to the Rose Hill Guineas on Slipper Day. Co-feature will be the 1,300 metre Group 1 Canterbury Stakes. The Slipper Puzzle will take on more clarity with the running of the Risling Stakes for the Phillies and the Todman for the Colts and Geldings. Sydney at this time of year plays host to world-class racing for mind-boggling prize money. The Australian Turf Club and Racing New South Wales proudly present the 2021 Autumn Carnival. A great era in Queensland racing journalism came to an end in 2012 when Bart Sinclair published his final story for the Brisbane Courier-Mail. It brought down the curtain on a 43-year career with the News Limited organisation, more than four decades of reporting on a sport he loves. For Bart Sinclair, the clatter of hooves on a bitumen road has always been a reminder of a childhood growing up in the Brisbane suburb of Ascot, a stone's throw from Eagle Farm Racecourse. By the time young Bart came along in 1950, His father, Bart Senior, was well-established as a trainer following a successful riding career which took him all over Australia. Young Bart was just 13 when his dad trained the 1963 Stradbroke winner Malala and 17 when he won the Queensland derby with Minto Cragg. Family and friends were convinced Bart Junior would follow in Dad's footsteps but they had no knowledge of the young man's fascination with the racing stories he was reading every day in newspapers and magazines. On leaving school, he enrolled for a business studies course, but quit after two years because he didn't like the accountancy component. The 1st of January 1970 goes down as one of the most important days in Bart's professional career. This was the day he began his long association with News Limited as a cadet with the Australian's Brisbane Bureau. A few years later, Bart began his involvement with radio and television, which, combined with his daily exposure in the print media, quickly saw him become a prominent voice for Queensland racing. These days, he puts that experience to good use in several roles with the Brisbane Racing Club. I am highly delighted to welcome Bart Sinclair to our podcast. Great to have you, Bart. Great to be with you, John. And, uh, yeah, you, you painted a picture there that uh, <laughs> it afforded me a wonderful life. I got paid to go to the races. Can you imagine? <laughs> mm. You know, following your official retirement in 2012, you took a few months off but it wasn't long before you were walking the box and an approach from the Brisbane Racing Club was timely and palatable. What do you do for the BRC? Yeah, look, just the various uh, little roles there, uh, a bit of writing, which I enjoy, um, 
members' newsletters, a few uh, various things for the marketing team. Um, just enjoy being part of the race day experience and uh, it's just wonderful to still have this association with, with racing and racing in Brisbane in particular. Yeah. Mixing with horsemen has always been the favourite part of your job and you've never broken the habit. You still go to all the midweek and Saturday meetings in Brisbane, catching up with old mates and making a few new ones. Yeah, look, uh, um, because of my longevity in in racing, um, I know most of the elder statesmen. And last week, sadly, we uh, we had a farewell for uh, John Page, mm. who moved to Queensland in 1997 and uh, you know, had a great time at the Gold Coast with uh, his wife, Helen. He, he supported her so uh, vigorously over their time together. 38 years they were together. Mm. And at that uh, farewell, boy, there were some old heads there. You know, uh, blokes from the Gold Coast like Harold Norman, uh, Noel Doyle, mm. uh, Bevan Lamming, and uh, it was just great to catch up with some of the guys. You know, Barry Lockwood and BJ Smith uh, came down from Brisbane for the – the celebration at the Gold Coast Turf Club, and and I like still talking to those guys who uh, older than me and talking about the different eras. You know, like mm. I go back to the sixties and seventies, and racing was you know, for trainers was about getting a quid on race day. Uh, mm. If you had a winner, you had to get a quid. Now it's you know it's prize money driven, and trainers get ten percent of the prize money. You, you had to be a bit. Uh, clever sometimes to to get a, a, a return when your horse won and you're trying to get a bit better price than might otherwise be the case. I uh, mm. love talking about those old days and I call them likeable larrikins, a few scallywags, but they were doing their best. Helen Page, of course, will continue to train on the Gold Coast with a smallish team, great horsewoman, and she's had wonderful success, particularly since going to Queensland. Yes, look, she had a wonderful time uh, in Sydney at Warwick Farm, but certainly uh, her involvement here in the last 23 years, she's been a a big player at the Gold Coast, but also she's had a lot of runners in the uh, metropolitan area. So, And she's always just such a pleasant person to deal Mm. with. She's always got a smile and uh, a hello for everyone. And she's she's an ornament uh, for racing here in Queensland now, but, Previously, uh, when she was at Warwick Farm, the reason they came to Queensland because of John's health. You know, he, yeah. the doctors told him he wouldn't see out a, another winter at Warwick Farm, so they made the snap decision. He'd always love going to the Gold Coast when he was training in his own right. He'd come mm. here for winter carnivals, and um, yeah, he had twenty-three great years here and, and built up an army of friends. Mm, certainly did. Your dad, Bart Senior, was born in nineteen hundred and three. At Eidswold mm. in the Burnett River country, he was one of 12 kids, which wasn't all that unusual in that era. He was given the Christian and middle names of a man who was rapidly rising to prominence as a journalist, as a poet and as a balladeer. Your dad was christened Andrew Barton Sinclair. Yeah, named after Banjo, Andrew Barton Patterson, uh, who was coming to prominence uh, then as a, as a balladeer and and uh, such beautiful Australian uh, poetry. Um, he, could, he was a great storyteller and 
I was the third child and my mother went to hospital with instructions having produced two daughters, get this right or else, boy, <laughs> don't, don't come don't come home unless it's a boy and uh, he'll be, uh, but first name would be Barton. Yeah. So, um, but Cummings was Bartholomew, James Bartholomew, but I'm a Barton. Yeah. So that, uh, we sound a bit, a bit pompous, so we abbreviated that to Bart uh, and yeah. I was uh, at school, so that sort of stuck. And the middle name is John. Barton, John, yeah, John but my Sinclair. mother got to pick the second name. She said, well, the first name sounds a bit ritzy. We'll go John's plain <laughs> second name. Yeah, good. <laughs> you know, it's all the more appropriate, isn't it, when you consider Banjo Patterson's love of horses and his love of racing. Yeah, look, uh, it's, it's uh, racing's a, a great leveller in lots of ways, but it's uh, it, it, so many kindred spirits and it's not just – Gambling, that's that's a component of, of racing. But I always say that it's, it's, it can be social interaction, it can be business networking. It can be, I think, the love of a thoroughbred. You know, they're just such magnificent animals. Recently, uh, we had the leader of the National Party, Michael McCormack, uh, mm. asked could he come to Eagle Farm in Doombin and look at the BRC's wonderful museum. Mm. And he was blown away. Uh, he was taking photos, but he has a beautiful collection himself. When he was on Zoom quite a few times in the last six months and shooting from his um, office, mm. one of his cabinet colleagues said, I didn't realise you, you were so fond of the law. You've got all those law books in your in the background in your mm. library. And he said, no, 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 they're all horse racing books. Goodness, mate. Yeah. He's got a collection, all those um, um, turf registers, you know, the, the stud books. He's got the, um, the blue books, all the results. In, and um, we have a beautiful collection here mm. at the museum at Eagle Farm and the archive at Doombin. At Doombin, John, um, a beneficiary of a, a wonderful lady called Evelyn Stanley. Mm. Her husband, Bill, and and Ev, as we call her, raced many horses. He was a committeeman at the Queensland Turf Club, but he had they raced 99 horses in all. The best was Raja Saab. Yeah. They, they, they had a collection of trophies, including a Cox Plate, a Doncaster, a Stradbroke, mm. huge number of feature race wins. She has great memorabilia from – kept a scrapbook of everything. She donated the lot mm. to the Brisbane Racing Club. Mm. So there's a designated room at Durban to the Stanley Collection mm. and it takes up the entire room. It is just magnificent. And uh, you, you, you try to imagine – what it would be worth, and it's priceless because it wouldn't mean as much to some people, but if you're a racing person and you see the Cox mm. Plate there, you see the trophy from uh, the Stradbroke Handicap, it's, yeah. uh, it's a wonderful gesture by Mrs Stanley and uh, it's it's given so much pleasure to so many people to come and see it. So uh, Michael McCormack was blown away and it was, it was a great privilege to show him around such a, a mm. beautiful product. Michael McCormack is not the only politician or former politician or late politician uh, to have developed an interest in racing. Bob Hawke was dedicated, as was the late Jim Killen, yeah. uh, Michael Duffy, Lionel Bowen, who was a former Attorney General. He was always first through the gate at Randwick when he was home, when he wasn't in Canberra. Many's the time I walked in the turnstiles at Randwick behind Lionel Bowen. Yeah, look, Michael McCormack was on the committee of the Murrumbidgee Turf Club for nine years. So he's a great historian. And here's a stat. I didn't have a clue. The first Wagga Cup was run in 1849. No. 
well before the Melbourne Cup. In one year, the Wagga Cup was worth more money than the Melbourne Cup. Goodness heaven, that's a, so that's he, a trivia. So he stunned me. Yeah, it is. Mm. It is. <laughs> You'll win, win that most times. Incredible. Now, your dad's riding career, Bart, was well over before you were born. Yeah. So in the absence of the wonders of video, you had to rely on people who saw him in action to reaffirm his talents, and he had some. Yeah, look, he, he started uh, riding in that Eidsfold Gainder area. Gainder had a big history. The first Queensland Derby was run there, so it was a very strong racing area. And it was traditional that the, the top riders there would go to Rockhampton and then my father gravitated to Brisbane. Mm. He, uh, in the war years, uh, Eagle Farm and Doom and was shut. They raced at Albion Park on the sand. He uh, went to Sydney where he had opportunities down there. There were so many tracks in, in Sydney still racing. Mm. And uh, and at one stage he was um, asked to go down to Melbourne and he, he rode in Wait for Age races down there. Mm. Um, yeah, look, the people I respect who saw him ride said he was just a wonderful horseman. He was still breaking in horses in his 60s, mm. early 60s, and he just had a, a wonderful affinity. He never had a big team. He had about 14, 16 horses at most. He, and a bit of good luck, he always had a, a good horse. Uh, Malala was a super horse. Been before him, the, the, the older brother called Bindana, unfortunately. Both of them had leg issues, but Bindana mm. probably could have gone to Sydney and Melbourne and been up to Group 1 standard as well. Mm. I think he pulled off one healthy betting coup with Bindana. Bindana, and, yeah. And he used an unfashionable jockey to, to, get, <laughs> to get a better price. Yeah, well, I think that was forced on him by the owner had an association with Henry Davis, who was a writer, later a successful trainer, getting mm. closest trainer. And uh, I think my father thought, well, even he'll win on this. He didn't have much of a rap on him as a jockey. He drew 23 out of 24 at the – it was seven less 93 yards, I think, seven furlongs less 93 yards at Doom, but he drew 23. And my father said, I don't care if he starts on Nudgy Road, he'll still win. Mm. He won by a head. He was 33s into seven to two and uh, everyone very happy. But he, he scraped home. And as Henry got off, he said, you must be the worst jockey in the world to only win on that horse by a head. <laughs> and Henry, uh, in, later in his life, admitted he, he was a pretty ordinary rider. But uh, anyhow, mm. Bindana, that was – um, his first win, and, and then he went on. He was an Australasian record holder at 10 and a half furlongs. He, he won from six furlongs. To, yeah, there was a Doombin double. It was a, that sprint is run in November, seven less 93 one week, and um, 11 furlongs on the next Saturday. Yeah. And he won both. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was that, that sort of horse. He was a, a bit of a freak, but um, didn't have a, a long career because of his leg problems. Mm. There's one lovely story about your dad from his writing days that we've got to tell. During the war years when Brisbane racing was restricted to Albion Park, several jockeys moved interstate and dad was one of them and he was riding a former Queensland horse in track work at Randwick. He was pretty sure he was going to be the rider when mm -hmm. that horse had his first Sydney start at Canterbury just before Christmas 1945. The horse was? Yeah, he's riding Burnbury and he's great friends with Harry Plant, who's originally from Queensland, so he knew of him. He was riding a lot of work for Harry and some races. And um, uh, I think Mr. Romano owned Burnbury said, no, he didn't want Sinclair on. He wanted McGrady on, Digger McGrady. Mm -hmm. And uh, the horse was beaten. He didn't want McGrady on. Then he wanted mm -hmm. Mully on, and then away he went. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, he, my father wasn't too happy with. 
uh, Mr Romano. No, you tell me the little story that one night in Brisbane he ran into Mr Romano in an elevator. <laughs> in the lift, yes. He, uh, I think it was at Lennon's, which was the go-to place on Saturday nights uh, for Ferdinand and had a bit of a win and winter carnival time. There was, um, you know, that's where racing people would go, with either to celebrate or commiserate. And um, I think you, Mr. Romano might have been lucky. My mother was there at the time. <laughs> I think words were exchanged, but other things might have been exchanged if she hadn't been there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure of it. Your dad obviously got a big buzz out of winning a local derby, the Queensland Derby with Minto Crag. Yeah, he's a good horse. Um, you know, pretty lightly framed early. Won the the hopeful stakes at his first start at, at big odds. And as the track was a little bit soft that day, everyone thought it was a fluke. And my father ran him again a fortnight later, I think it was called the Sapling Stakes. And mm. um, George Mully was in town because we had a good summer carnival. There was the um, Queensland Derby used to be run in the spring and the Queensland Cup, the Brisbane Handicap. And I don't know what horse drew George Mully, can't remember, to Brisbane. My father, Tony Earhart, rode him in the um, hopeful, I think he was suspended, so he um, used the services of George Mully. And people always say jockeys are bad judges. I don't necessarily agree with that. They get the feel of a horse. And he ran on late. He wasn't a speedster. He ran on late in a five furlong race, thousand metres again at mm. Eagle Farm. And George Mully got off and said, "This will be a Derby horse." Did he? And mm. the following year, he won the Derby. So he's a pretty good judge. And what about Oxford King Bart? This was the yeah. horse your dad bought in an English sale for 300 guineas, was it? 325 guineas, I think he was. He's yeah. a very small horse, well put together, but, you know, very small. And uh, um, my father had an eye, eye for a, a yearling and uh, he took the odds to him. He, he had a reasonable page, but everyone shied away from him because of his lack of height. And he was patient with him. I think he won his first race at uh, Laidley. He might have been a provincial race. He went on and he won, uh, you know, a couple of dozen races and he was a specialist um, at exhibition time, our August meeting, August Carnival. Mm. He won the exhibition handicap three years in a row, which is difficult to do. Because of his lack of size, he wasn't a great weight carrier, so he was fairly well managed. Mm. He might have had a few runs when he was a bit porky. Mm. <laughs> Get him down in the weight. Yeah. <laughs> But he, he, was a, he was another versatile horse. One year he won the Ascot Handicap. Graham Cook won the Ascot Handicap on him on the Saturday. That was seven furlongs. And he won the Exhibition Handicap, ten and a half furlongs on the Wednesday. And then he, the next year he was beaten in the Ascot narrowly and he won the Exhibition and then he backed up again the following year. So he was a great money spinner for the stable. A horse who was probably you know, uh, three or four links off Stradbroke. Yeah. You know, he, yeah, that that was a, you know, he's a good bread and butter horse, not group one standard, but no. terrific group two sort of horse. And if you managed him as my father did very well, he, he was able to get him into races with a reasonable weight. Mm. And uh, he was, he could find form very quickly. Mm. A couple of other distinctions accredited to your dad regarding two old Queensland race courses that are long gone. Mm. Yeah, look, he it, it was uh, unregistered racing in Brisbane in the 30s and he uh, rode the last winner at Kedron Park. John Wren was active in Brisbane racing with these unregistered meetings and eventually the uh, administrators decided that it was a bit risky so they sent out an edict uh, 
if you rode at an unregistered meeting, you wouldn't be licensed to ride at the the registered meetings, which was Eagle Farm. So the jockeys all took the tip, and you know, ninety five percent of them went to back to full time registered racing. So he mm-hmm. he rode the last winner at Kedron, and Deegan shut down in the forties, and um, he rode a winner on the last uh, race meeting there not the last race but he rode a winner at the last yeah. meeting there so mm. a bit of he was part of uh, a bit of queensland racing history there you were riding ponies around the stables and out on the road at a very early age yeah look i think it was two or three of the shetland pony uh, mare and and uh, fell in the rose bush a couple of times so <laughs> it must have must have I don't know, must have been stupid. I got straight back on and went round again. <laughs> and he had to go round and round and round the house. At, uh, you know, I started going to Eagle Farm with my father. He'd ride a pony and lead a racehorse and lead my pony beside um, on the other side. And uh, we used to walk the streets from Kent Street, which was just off Racecourse Road, up through the back streets and come into Eagle Farm uh, near Lancaster Road, which was the Ascot Doombin bus uh, tram terminal mm-hmm. so you'd have the noise of the trams you know, sometimes frighten the horses so i started going there you know irregularly but but going there when i was four or five with him i loved you know seeing all the horses going out to track work and got to know quite a few of the trainers and uh, bill o'brown used to manage the scraping sheds there he, he became a good friend and uh, i just love the early morning action it's just sort of like a you're in not far from the centre of Brisbane, but it's like a little um, you know colony that that comes alive in the mornings and yeah. still does. There's 440 horses in the infield of the Eagle Farm. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's amazing. You, you've got this hive of activity early morning. So I, when I finished at the paper, I sort of sat down one day and tried to, to guess how many times I'd been to Eagle Farm. So I used to go race meetings. Barrier trials. I'd been, I'd been used to nominate horses there, so mm. to go with my father or mother if she's putting nominations in. So it just seemed to be forever. I was going through the gates of Eagle Farm, going to track work, mm. and going to racing stewards' inquiries. They were based on course. And look, I could be way out, John, but in night in two thousand and twelve, I had a guess. I reckon I'd been there twelve thousand times, and I've been there, <laughs> yeah. I've been there a lot of times since then. Yeah. You know, in the days when you were riding those ponies around the stables and out on the road, you were often joined by a budding jockey who remains a close mate to this day. Yeah, uh, Jock Logley Jr., he was. His father was a jockey. Uh, the jockey kind of went to Ascot School the same uh, time I was there. He was in the same mm-hmm. uh, grade. And, uh, yeah, we became much – his mother and my mother were very friendly. Mm-hmm. Jock briefly played – football um uh, he, so the joyce galogli and my mother would uh, take the car and have coffee in the car while we we trained at main football club it was mm. uh, uh yeah we've been, been doing good buddies for a long long while mm. he rode a group one winner too yeah he went on ben galilad in the ten thousand. um mm. you know it was great you know for the for the his grandfather trained the horse uh, fred and um, he was under a bit of pressure to replace Jock, but uh, he, he stuck with him and, mm. and Jock gave him a beautiful ride and, and he won. So that was the career highlight for Jock, no doubt. Yeah, Jock's been in Newcastle for quite a few years yeah, now. Yeah, long while. He went to Hong Kong for a little while, was uh, number two mm. rider up there for uh, 
George Moore. Yep. And, um, yeah, so Newcastle's been his home now for a long, long while. He does some work for Chris Lees at the track every morning. Yeah, they're, they're good buddies. I think Chris had a 50th birthday uh, recently and they had a big gathering. Chris mm. has got a great group of friends around him. He's got some great owners and Jock does a clocking in the morning, so it's a good interest for him. And mm. they're, they're great mates. You've always had a passion for the Sydney Autumn Carnival and that stems from those days when your dad would bring you down to watch races like the Doncaster and the Sydney Cup. You were 16 when you saw Tobin Bronze beat an emerging top liner in the memorable Doncaster of 1967. That made a hell of an impression on you. I think that was... It still sticks in my mind as the greatest performance. Tobin Bronze might have might not have been the greatest horse I, I saw, but that performance, and that was an impressionable age, I suppose. And he had a massive weight. Cabochon had seven five or something, and he, was, he gave yeah. him over two stone yeah. and gave him a good start at the two hundred meters. And um, this liver chestnut came down the the middle of the track and and scored. And I, I didn't think possible because Cabochon was already touted as being a top liner and he went on in mm. the next 12 months to be the best miler in Australia. Mm. And um, to to give that horse so much weight and, and, and a start and beat him, it was stuck in my mind and, and still is. I, I always say it's probably the greatest single performance I've seen, but, mm. you know, then you try and compare that with Maccabi Diva and Black Caviar and Wings. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, maybe I'm living in the past a bit, but and yeah, the, the great memories of, of those other horses I just mentioned. But mm. it just stuck in my mind. How did he do that? No, yeah. I don't think you're living in the past, mate. The following year, Cabochon won an Epsom in a canter. Des Lake told trainer Phil Lotter after the Epsom he was he was home at the half mile. He couldn't hold him slow enough. Yeah, yeah. And he's then, a he very good stra- horse. then he won a Stradbroke. Stradbroke, yeah. yeah. They use a super horse and. He just was in at the right weight at the right time, but he ran into a horse that just had an amazing will to win. Mm. You landed that coveted scholarship with the Australian and you got one of the best breaks of your career when a man called J.C. Anderson became your mentor. (laughs) Jim Anderson had been one of the early uh, Brisbane race callers. Yeah, look, when, when race callers were banned from the track, he called the races from the back straight. Uh, from someone's backyard around about the 1,200 metre or the six furlong mark. Uh, he, was a, he was a great gentleman, always had the white shirt and tie and grey suit. And um, But he taught me a lot about – he was the handicapper for Tattersall's Racing Club and also for the Provincials. He worked for the Sunday paper and he struggled a bit um, with his mobility. So I would do the interviews and come back and he, he was big on breeding. He was big on history. He, he, he had the – blue books and he'd look up things and, and records and say, you know, he'd ring me and say there's a feature race on Saturday. 30 years ago, a horse did this, this, this and this and this favourite, is you know, following along the same lines and he gave me a lot of information I could use for stories mm-hmm. and he had a, a lovely style of writing but he's just the way he carried himself and he, he, he taught me a lot. He was, he was a mm-hmm. great mentor. You were only 23 years old when you made your radio debut on 4BC Brisbane, today known as 4TAB. You joined the station's chief race caller, the late great Vince Curry, uh, bookmaker Doug Boyle and the very popular Jill Darcy on a racing preview program which was pre-recorded on the Friday. 
Now, Bart, looking back at 23, you must have been a little overawed by the presence of such experienced panellists. Yeah, look, um, you know, Vince was regarded as, you know, like with yourself, as you know, in the top echelon of race callers. Um, he was a, a gentleman and he tapped me on the shoulder and asked me would I like to join this panel. And I thought, well, you know, <laughs> I might be out of my league here. Uh, Jill Darcy, uh, she was very knowledgeable in, in racing and a great sense of humour. Doug Boyle was a, a bookmaker who uh, knew my father well. Uh, just a, a really lovely man. So they made me feel welcome. We uh, would run off each other very well. It became quite a popular show, but we'd record it late Friday morning and quite often we'd go and have lunch together and, mm. and swap stories. And I learned a lot um, from those lunches. Um, yeah, it was a great opportunity for me too and uh, getting into the electronic media and that led to later doing other radio gigs and also um, a bit of um, TV. Yeah, well, you made your first foray into television when you were invited to join the panel on a very popular Sunday sports program called Sports Scene, which had a very long run. I can remember our great mate Rod Gallegos hosting that show for a long time. He did, and um, and Billy J. Smith also did it, David Fordham, mm. and it had a, it had a great following Sunday morning to cover broad range of, of sport, um, and, you know, the... Racing segment was, was we were able to go through all the, the races from the day before, some of the feature races uh, from uh, recent times as pointers to lead up races coming on. It was a, it was a good racing component in a long um, Sunday morning sports show. So it, it was that again was a great experience. Is it true that you once had a crack at reading the news on Channel Ten? <laughs> I didn't know about well, that one. Well, that was before sports scene and. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I was a pretty rough newsreader, but the, the, the prompter broke down most nights and oh, the, <laughs> it was a baptism of fire. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I was, but I, I learned from it and, and that helped me get the gig with, uh, with, with sports scenes. <laughs> yeah, well, it wasn't a bad CV. I've read the news on Channel 10. Yeah, but I didn't read it well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there was there were some funny moments there. Um, Brian Carl was um, one of the senior newsreaders, and you know, he tried to help me a bit, but <laughs> I think the nerves got the better of me most nights. Oh, of course. You know, when you were a young married man with all of the normal financial commitment, it said that you once had seven jobs going at once. <laughs> yeah, that was. Can you, that was, was that true? Yeah, my word it was. Yeah, I worked. Uh, well, I was working full time for the Australian for a long while, and before the Daily Sun started, and so I'd work five days for the Australian. Saturday, I did the Sunday Sun. Uh, Sunday morning, I'd get up early, go to work, go to sports scene, um, come back and finish work, and get home mid afternoon Sunday. So it was a pretty full weekend. But I also did radio for Two um, KY for. Mm-hmm. A station in Melbourne. I did some work for Sporting Globe. Did some work for other things. I had seven jobs for a long while. Mm. You've lived all but seven months of your seventy years in the Ascot area, close to Eagle Farm. Now you and Judy moved away once, but you didn't like it. <laughs> no, well, Cooper was a great suburb, but it was in the southern part of Brisbane, and 
you're either northern or southern in Brisbane, and um, yeah, I was missing planes. I was late to work. And, uh, where I subsequently lived at Clayfield, we had a family home there for th- over 32 years. A tenant, old tenant, Timber Queenslander on stilts. And they're, they're beautiful homes, but mm. um, you, you always got your hand in your kick patching something up. But um, yeah, so from there, from that Clayfield home, I could get to Eagle Farm by car in one minute. Get to Doombin in two minutes. Mm. Could get to the radio station in about four minutes. It was at Albion. Mm. Get to my office at the newspaper at Bowen Hills in about five, and into the city in about six or seven. So it's it was, a no-brainer. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, friends lived in Sydney at the commute for an hour, but each way. Mm. And I said, I just, I just went to Eagle Farm for a minute, <laughs> and got home in a minute. You and Judy are the proud parents of two girls, Sarah and Kate. What yep. are the ages of those girls and what are they up to? We're having lunch with uh, Sarah and uh, her grandson Tom today. She's um, in her 40s and Kate's in the late 30s. She lives in Sydney and uh, and uh, both of them are working from home and enjoying it in these COVID times. But uh, they're in great health and yeah, we we uh, got a good strong family unit and stick solid. But uh, they've been you know, a great source of joy, particularly our grandson Tom. Now he's doing third year law. Uh, if I get in any trouble, I'll be right to get some legal advice. Yeah, you get the right <laughs> fee. Yeah, maybe. Uh, yeah, say to you, Pop, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> now, Bart, let's whip through some of the racing highlights. Uh, that occurred uh, during your four decades as a racing writer in Brisbane. Two things happened in Queensland racing during that career that upset you greatly. One of them, of course, was the infamous fine cotton scandal, Mm. which has been done to death, so we won't elaborate, but you've always believed there was one saving grace to come out of it. Yeah, look, I I think the the one thing that there might have been mistakes made pre-race and should have been picked up, but at least correct weight wasn't declared. The horse was disqualified before weight was declared. So those punters who backed the horse, in the knowledge it was a ring-in, they did their money. And I have no sympathy for them whatsoever. No. I have no sympathy for the people who organised it. Um, it. It was very detrimental to racing in general, but racing in Queensland in particular. But at least the, the perpetrators were caught. The punters who had prior knowledge did their money, and that to me was a good outcome. Case closed. Yep. Now, Bart, many of our listeners will remember the caffeine episode in Queensland Racing, which wrongly implicated several trainers whose records had been absolutely unblemished. That upset you too. Yeah, it did, particularly when it emerged the people at the testing centre were accidentally putting the caffeine in the Swab samples. They used a stick to stir the sam- the sample up mm. while they were testing, and the stick they were using had caffeine on it. So they were they were injecting caffeine into these samples, and there were dozens of them around Queensland, dozens of cases. Mm. And you know, one in particular that stuck in my mind, Tommy Dawson, who was squeaky clean. Mm. He was implicated and it, it absolutely was a stake in the heart for him. Yeah. And when it did come out, uh, uh, a scientist called Dr Ken Donald, who was a former great rugby union player, mm. 
he traced it through. He was called in to investigate and he found the swizzle stick had caffeine. So all cases were, people were exonerated and they, yep. shut, they shut it all down. So that, that was a terrible period because it dragged on for some time. Mm. Brisbane has long been the mecca of interstate and New Zealand horses during your famous winter carnival. You've admired many of them, but there was one who captured your heart. You wouldn't yeah, have looked look, twice I, at Rough Habit, would you? Wasn't he plain? Well, particularly as a three-year-old, he came here. I've been quoted as saying it, and I did say it. <laughs> I did say it. I don't resolve from the fact. John Wheeler had been coming here a bit, and he was, he was a friend. He was, he was a great raconteur. Hmm. And he produced this horse, Rough Habit, to run in the uh, – he ran in the lead-up to the derby. And hmm. I said, he looks like a goat. Hmm. He was a very plain-looking horse. He had a bit of hair on him, come out of New Zealand winter. But he had a great winter carnival here. He, he uh, ran well in the, the, the thing that was the rough habit or that lead up race. Uh, he, he actually ran in the Doombin Cup that year. Uh, Wait for Ogen was placed, and uh, then he's had a, a short break, and then he went to Melbourne in the spring. And he was, that was the campaign where he, he was very disappointing. But he'd had a long campaign in New Zealand. Then he came to Brisbane, and because he was so tough, John kept him going. But he didn't have the long break. And, but he, he subsequently came back to Queensland. He, he won three Stradbrokes, three mm. Doombin Cups. He, he was a, a magnificent horse here. Mm. And he did you know, run well in Sydney and Melbourne, particularly in one Cox Plate. He was a bit unlucky. And Peter Cook, I think, might have ridden him. Oh, no, Jim Cassidy, sorry, mm. who rode him at Caulfield one day. He had a huge weight. It was, it was a wet track, but he just rounded them up in a blink. And he could do that on a wet track. Mm. He would run like it was it was a dry track and the others were floundering in the ground. He could he mm. could get past them in three or four bounds. But he, he had a, a lot of character, the horse. The last day he won here was the O'Shea Stakes, and his form had tapered a little bit, and Shane Scriven was asked to ride him and he rode him track work during the week and the horse bolted with him, mm. you know, in the track work. So he was very sheepish. He came back and John Wheeler said, don't worry, when he does that, he'll run well. He was in the O'Shea. They, I think they bet 10 to 1. And it was like the horse was just taking Shane through the runs. He just – he came from back in the field in the O'Shea stakes and he won easily. And uh, it was a great way for him to – to farewell Brisbane because he, we gave him honorary Queensland status and you can't do more than that. We don't take to outsiders too much. But no. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I reckon you've got to do 13 years here before we'll call you a Queenslander. But <laughs> he, he, he was such a charismatic horse. Yeah. And we've, we've had other great horses come over. Um, Kingdom Bay, he was a great three-year-old here. Canterbury Bell won the Stradbroke as a – as a uh, three-year-old filly. Um, some, some magnificent New Zealanders are coming in. We go back you know, uh, to the 60s. So they, they were you know, coming regularly and winning our, our big races. Brian Smith had a horse called Balmerino yeah. in the mid-60s, won a Brisbane Cup. So we've had a lot of champion New Zealanders here, but Rough Habit was the one with the charismatic uh, yeah. following. You know, He's just a beautiful competitor. Mm. With the possible exception of Tullock's Winning swan song in the 1961 yeah. Brisbane Cup. No farewell appearance on a Brisbane race course ever generated more emotion than the one you just mentioned, Rough Habits O'Shea Stakes. You saw a couple of 
pretty hardened racing men shed a tear that day, didn't you? Yeah, look, a couple of them, uh, you know, I didn't think you could possibly put their head in a vice and give them pain. It would make them cry, but they, <laughs> they cried at that. Um, yeah, Tullock, uh, just going back to him, it's another thing in the museum, the Haley family, Mm-hmm. have donated that 1961 Brisbane Cup. Well, it's it's, it's on loan probably in perpetuity um, and it's, it takes pride of place at Eagle Farm. Tullock was unbeaten at Eagle Farm. He he won the Sires, he won the Derby, he, he won the O'Shea a couple of times and he won the, the uh, Brisbane Cup. That was, that was uh, 1961 and there was hardly put a pin between people. And you see the photos how the, the the dress has changed on race courses. In the public section, three-piece suit for gentlemen and a hat yeah. was was a standard. In the public section. Yeah. Uh, is, yeah. It's another era. Racing riders rely heavily on the cooperation and goodwill of winning trainers when races have been run. Now, most of those trainers barred everywhere all around Australia are fairly accessible you get the odd one, like the, the late Jack Denham, who shunned the press always. How do you mm. look back on your four decades reporting on Brisbane racing? Oh, I think I was very fortunate, John, having been born into a racing family. My father was so well-known and respected by other trainers. So when I came along, I, I didn't really have any trouble. I'd sort of known most of these trainers. I was secretary of the Trainers Association when I was 18. So when I went into uh, the media, I, it, it was you know, sort of had a, a walk-up start because I knew them all and, and they knew me and, and trusted me. And that's the thing about racing. If, you, if you've got a, a pretty good name, it'll stand you in good stead. If you do the wrong thing, you pretty quickly get shunned. You know, you know, I, th- I think it was mutual respect and I didn't really have any problem with uh, – there might have been an odd one or two didn't like me, but mm. so be it. No one, no one gets 100% of the vote. No, absolutely. <laughs> You've devoted many hours of your time to honorary positions in fundraising organisations and different social clubs in the Brisbane racing world. Mm. One of your favourite roles is the presidency of of the famous Burnborough Club, whose many members, and you agree with them, are proud to tell you exactly what it represents. Yes, uh, <laughs> our signature statement is we're a bunch of geriatric pisspots who meet occasionally to pay homage to a dead racehorse. That's <laughs> <laughs> it sums it up beautifully. Callous We've... and insensitive, insensitive as it is, <laughs> it tells the story. Well, everyone thinks Burnborough's the greatest horse ever produced in Queensland and uh, a predecessor of mine, Jim Anderson, not the JC Anderson I spoke about, but Jim Anderson, who was a great media man and uh, mm-hmm. a wonderful gentleman and a friend, he started the Burnborough Club in 1976 with a view to uh, kindred spirits getting together, racing people who also shared a love of sport and um, raise a few dollars for, for charity. So. Until COVID hit, we were raising about $50,000 a year to various charities, including the Racing Museum, Peter Howard's voluntary team there. And um, we've managed to get some wonderful guest speakers in in racing. We've had Peter Moody, Jerry Harvey, people like that, but also Wayne Bennett and uh, many, uh, Matthew Hayden, many 
great speakers. And we've got a function coming up soon. We've got Michael Rod as a racing um, ambassador to, to speak about his time in Melbourne, riding for Lloyd Williams in Singapore. Mm. And he did he, his early riding here in Brisbane, where his chief competitor was Zach Purton and the beautiful young men. And mm. um, Paul Green is the other guest speaker. We was booked um, just before he was announced as Queensland's next state of origin coach. So he'll have some great stories to tell. So mm. we provide a bit of entertainment. We provide some fun and camaraderie and um, people throw in for, for raffle tickets and we have great generous um, supporters who you give us great raffle prizes. So it's a, it's a win-win all round. Mm. When you quit the newspaper world in 2012, your replacement at the Courier-Mail was a young fellow called Nathan Exelby, who'd been your understudy for quite some time. Now, I read recently uh, that Nathan has also decided to move on after eight years. Yeah, yeah look, I, I was watching Nathan for a long while and when a position came up and I knew that I was going to step it down in a couple of years and I thought, I went to Nathan and I said, why don't you come and join me at the Courier? I'll spend time with you for two years. He already had a great knowledge of racing, a passion, uh, which I, I loved seeing that in him, and he had beautiful riding skills. And he just, you know, just needed a little bit of a polish here and there, but didn't take much. And and I, I said, look, I, I won't dodge you. I won't lead you along and then say, mm. no, I'm going to hang on. So I gave him a rough time, which I stuck to. And he's had a, a great career at the Courier-Mail. He's, he's covered... You know, spring carnivals, and he's a, he's a real talent. But newspapers have changed. Uh, no one's fault. It's just the way it's evolved. The media's changed, and he's been offered a multi-pronged offer position, working for Sky Channel, Radio TAB, and also doing some digital work for the BRC. And he'd be a great acquisition for the race club. And uh, you know, he's he's an exceptional talent, and I'm looking forward to working a little bit with him again, but uh, I was very pleased to see how Nathan has progressed in the time since I left the career. He's, he's been a great uh, asset to News Limited's racing coverage and, and he'll continue to be a great asset to Brisbane Racing. It's been a great journey, Barton, hasn't it? You wouldn't be changing uh, too much if you got a second nothing. shot at it. Nothing. nothing, nothing, John. Don't want to go back. To make I'd make some fresh mistakes. So, you know, <laughs> how lucky have I been? I've had a, a wonderful life, a great family. I'm very supportive. You know, had to work some weird hours at times with the weekend work, but um, that's the way it is. If you if you want to be involved in racing, you, you've got to you know work when the action is on. So, I was quite happy to do that, and luckily had the support of Judy and the family. And uh, look, you know, it's just had so much fun. Work with some great people. Um, we lost one of those recently, a bloke I worked with, Paul Malone, had mm. an unfortunate accident and, and recently deteriorated in his health and he passed away. But people like Robert Craddock, he, he started at the Daily Sun in 1982. We're still really close mates. Um, mm. Bernie Pramberg, David Falkemeyer, I knew when he came to the Australia when I was there mm. in 1972, I think, and yeah. we're, we're mates and we're a really tight group. So it's been a real joy to work with those people and for me going to the races and mixing with all my training trainer friends and jockeys and just the, the punters and in, in two in sorry in 1962 mm. there were 212 bookies at eagle farm 62 and knew, yeah and I, and I knew most of them <laughs> and and bet with quite a few of them too <laughs> i bet you did yeah 
So, yeah, and they, you know, went on until, you know, the advent of the TAB started to, and, and then, dare I say it, Sky Channel made the racetrack mm. experience a bit different. People could watch the races live elsewhere, and, and that's that's been the saviour of racing, the, the TAB and Sky, that people can watch it and and bet, and uh, I understand that's, that's kept racing going. Prize money's fantastic. Ever look at the recent sales that, Magic me, and it's just through the roof. Through the roof, absolutely. Yeah. So, look, yeah, racing's very lucky that they've had that, you know, they had the glory days, and, and they're still glory days. They're just different, but yeah. I'm still there at the track. I love the atmosphere of a racetrack. Mm. There's still some characters there, not as many, but there's still characters there, and I'm close to some of the trainers, and we always have a laugh, and, and I, like, I like looking at horses. I mm. just love it. Mm. But I try to glean or steal uh, a quote from most of our podcasts that I can use down the track, and you've just given me a gem. I've never heard it put better. <laughs> Racing still job. has its glory days. It's just different. It is. It is. It's, uh, but it, you still go to the track. Guess what? A boy might meet a girl there and they might get married. Mm. You'll still go to the track and you, you might be down and out and all of a sudden you're back a 20 to 1 winner and you parlay that on and you have a big day. More yeah. likely you, you'll do it. But anyway. <laughs> but you, that just, you, just, you're selling a dream when you sell racing. Now, people go and buy racehorses because it's a dream. It's a, it's a magnificent dream. The, the horse like the Herovian, you know, a few hundred yeah. dollars and he's, he's, he's going to get into the all-star mile. Mm. Um it's a great leveler. If 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 it was an exact science, the, the top people would breed the best horses. Mm. Sheikh Mohammed would own every good horse in the world. Yeah, he doesn't. No. He, you know, he, he, so the the battler, it, it doesn't happen often, but it happens. So yeah. you're selling a dream. Yeah, and Behemoth's the, another uh, yeah. great current example. A six thousand dollar yearling. He's just politely won a couple of Group Ones. Yeah, it's fantastic, and that's what yeah. keeps us going. We we think there's there's a chance, but it be might lovely. be it might be me. You know, everyone thinks yeah. that it might be my turn. But lovely to have you on the podcast. Thanks for your time on a Sunday morning. I've enjoyed it immensely, and uh, we'll catch up the first time I get to Brisbane. Good on you, John. I've enjoyed it too. It's been great talking to you. But Sinclair on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. Mm-hmm.